All right, well, welcome everyone to session three of How to Study the Bible. Or maybe I should just call it How Grant Studies the Bible. Maybe that'd be a better title for the class. And uh, this week we're going to be looking at how to mark your Bibles. This is an art and a skill that will change the way you read the Bible, study the Bible, and make your Bible your own. Uh, but before we do that, we want to get to our homework. You had two assignments. First of all, to compare the story uh, that is found in Mark with the account found in Luke, the story of Jairus, the synagogue leader, whose daughter, 12-year-old daughter, was dying, and he comes to Yeshua, please come to my house, because my daughter's dying, and if you come, you can heal her. And while they're on the way, the woman with the issue of blood, she's had an issue of blood for 12 years, coincidentally, and uh, she comes up behind Yeshua. She shouldn't have been in the crowd. And Jewish law, if you have an issue of blood, you do not mingle or touch other people. But she came up and she touched the corner of his garment, his zitzit. And she was healed immediately. And there was that little encounter between Yeshua and the lady. And right then, a messenger comes from Jairus' house saying, Never mind, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the master anymore. No need for him to come. But Yeshua goes anyway. He says, oh, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. Which is his way of referring to death. Death is sleep. So quit thinking of death as the end. Death is just when you go to sleep. And there's always a morning. You're always going to wake up. There's a resurrection coming. And, of course, Yeshua went in, took her by the hand, raised her up, and we have a happy ending. So you've got these two women, right? And... Uh, one is healed, one is resurrected. And I had asked you to make a comparison. We were talking about menorah patterns. So here you've got a menorah pattern built right into the story. You've got one story nested inside of a bigger story. So list some things about these two women. List some things about them, whether they're similarities or differences. And of course, one similarity, they're both female. I'll put that right across the middle. They're both female. What else do we have? Just shout it out. Don't be polite. Shout it out. There's something about touch. Uh, one had to ask Jesus to put his hands on, yeah. and she was thinking about just touching. Yes. So, in one case, let's put the older lady on the left, and let's put the younger on the right, okay? So, the older lady, she touches Yeshua. All right, and to make it fast, I'll just put capital Y. She touches Yeshua. The younger lady is touched by Yeshua. What else? I guarantee there's going to be a bunch of them you miss. Is it, can you read that? I've got this on a fine point. I can fatten it up if you want. Is it okay? All right, Paula. The, the father came to an advocate for the younger one where she came herself. Yes. So there's an advocate for the younger woman. There isn't one for the older woman. Okay, you can jot that down. Very good. Come on. They should be popping. Uh, one had a physical death and one had a spiritual death? Um, they were both physical. Whenever blood is coming out of the body, that's a picture of death. All right? But with the older woman, it was hidden. She's the only one who knew about it. 
So it was intimate, it was internal, it was hidden, it was private. Whereas when the younger woman died, she's dead. And all the mourners are yelling and screaming and crying. So this was very public. Doesn't say. Doesn't really matter. If it mattered, they'd tell us. What else? Where was the older woman when she touched Yeshua? In a crowd, indoors or outdoors? This is outdoors. Where was the young girl when she died? Okay. This was inside, indoors. Okay. One came to Yeshua, right? Yeshua came to the other. Where was the older woman in relation to Yeshua when she was healed? Behind him. Where was the young girl in relation to Yeshua? She was lying down, but the father prostrated himself before. Before, yes. But where was Yeshua in relation to the girl? In front of. Yes, she was in front of him. Now, Paul is on to something uh, here, because twice Paul has referred, referred to something that connects the two stories and is the key to unlocking the two stories. And it's not real obvious, but I think Paul is on the scent here. What else? For the sake of time, how about if I just go through some? The younger girl is 12 years old, right? I mentioned that earlier, but we didn't write it down. She's 12 years old. The older woman had the issue of blood for 12 years. She had suffered 12 years of suffering. Young girls alone, because Yeshua drove everybody out of the house, except for Peter, James, John, a couple people. But basically, it was a very private thing, whereas the older woman was in the crowd. With young girl, there's an invitation to Yeshua. Please come, heal my daughter. There was no invitation to the older woman. She took her own initiative to get healing. Both of them had given up hope. It says that of the older woman, she'd spent all her livelihood. In the Greek, it says she, she spent all of her bios. Bios means she'd spent her life. She'd given up her life. She'd given up hope. Young girl is dead. They said, don't bother the master. There's no need for him to come. There's no hope. In both cases, they were hopeless. Um, with the young girl, whose faith was at work? Yeah, for the father's faith. With the older woman, whose faith is at work? The woman herself. Um, both are called daughters. Both are called daughters. You should, hopefully you cut that and circled that. The old woman, Yeshua refers to as my daughter, he calls her. And then Jairus refers to his daughter as my daughter. Um, let's see, what are a few others? With the older woman, Yeshua gives comfort. What does he give to the younger girl? What does he command to be given to her? Food, give her food, yes. One is dying, one is dead. All right, so. There's no coincidence here that these two stories are made to plug together. They're made to go together. So why? What are we going to make of this? 
Who are the two girls? The one, the old one, the young one. What, what's all this about? Okay. When I gave you this assignment, I knew you'd probably need a little more information before you could really solve the riddle. And this is where a Jewish person would have a, an advantage over Gentiles. Because if an Orthodox Jew were to pick up the Brit Kaddashah, read the Gospels, and read this story, he would have lots of information, background information, that we probably don't have. Because the name Jairus is found many times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Can anybody think who Jairus was in the Hebrew Bible? Well, that's what he was in the gospel story. But he was named after somebody from the Old Testament scriptures. All right. In, if you have a, an English Bible, his name in your Old Testament is going to be J-A-I-R, Jair. In Hebrew, it looks like this. It's Yud, Aleph, Yud, Resh. Yair, Yair. And the first 11 times this is found in the scriptures, it's the name of a person. But the rest of the times, half a dozen times, it appears, it is a verb, which means to shine. The word or, olive vav resh, is the word for light. But this word that has an olive yud resh means to shine. This is something that emanates from the light. It's, something, it's what the light does. It shines out. So Yair is not the source of the light, but it's the effect of the light. But to make a long story short, if you read the book of Judges, Yair was the seventh judge of Israel, number seven. He was the seventh judge. You'll read about him in Judges chapter 10. Yes, chapter 10. He only gets three verses, verses 3, 4, and 5. He was the seventh judge of Israel, and he's called the 30 judge. <laughs> because when you read there, it says the Ayer had 30 sons. They rolled, ro rode on 30 colts, and they ruled 30 cities, and they were called the villages of Yair. And we find there that he ruled for 22 years. Now, when you take all these hints together, we understand who Yair, moving back to the Gospels, what he's a symbol of, because everything is a symbol of something. The stories literally happened. I believe they happened exactly where they're described. But they, God orchestrated the stories to happen as they did, to be recorded as they were recorded, to teach us. And uh, Robin and I visited uh, Brandon's group at, um, at his home on Shabbat morning, and Brandon shared a, a quote that I think is just awesome um, from, from one of the sages. I don't remember who, but the sage says, if, you're, if you study the Torah and read the word ox, and you think ox, you are an ox. Because in the scriptures, this is about that. Everything is about something that can't be seen. In fact, what does Paul talk about in his letters? 
he says, you know, he quotes the Torah. Don't muzzle the ox that grinds out the corn. He says, you don't think God's concerned just about oxen, do you? He says, no, this is about that. Don't think about oxen. Think about what it's referring to, what it's trying to teach you. Okay? And that's what we need to learn to do with the scriptures. Read the Peshat level, understand the Peshat, but now what is God trying to communicate to us through this? What is this a picture of? So here's one last key, and then I'm going to give you the same assignment for next week, the story. Here's the one other key. There are two people in this account who go all the way through the account. They're in the first part of the story of the daughter. They both appear in the story of the old woman. And then they're both there at the resurrection of the little girl. One of them is Yeshua. Who's the other person who's named? Yair. He's the key. Yeshua and Yair. They're the keys. One is the light of the world. The other is the shining forth of that light. He's the ruler of the synagogue. So I want you to think about light and the effect of light in the world, of Yeshua and the light that comes from him. When you think of Yeshua and Yair in those terms, the two stories begin to emerge and you see some life principles, some prophetic principles come forth. Okay? This is what rabbinic thinking is like. And if we had Jewish people teaching us the scriptures, these are the ways they'd be teaching us. Uh, but until that day comes when the Jews in the world will start to go out and teach Torah to the world, uh, we have to kind of, you know, grovel along the best we can. So I'm going to give you the same assignment for next week with these other key factors. Oh, and by the way, here's a psalm I want you to read. I want to make sure you don't forget this. Psalm 119, and it's going to be verse 130. Psalm 119, verse 130. It's only five words long in the Hebrew. Listen to the words. Petach davarecha, the opening of your words. Yair, there's Jairus' name, shines forth. Then the last two words are Mevin petayim, to, uh, to give understanding to the simple. So you've got five words. The middle one is Yair, it's like a menorah. And the first word, the last word, start with the same two letters. First word is petak, the last word is petayim. Okay, so there's definitely a menorah pattern here. And Yair, the shining forth, is right in the middle. In our synagogues, our gatherings, Shouldn't there always be a shining forth? That is the master of the synagogue of the gathering. Yair, he was the leader of the synagogue. Light should always be what is prominent and in control in any gathering we have, including this one, whatever our gathering is. Light should be the master of our gathering. And that light shines forth from who? From Yeshua. Okay? So, there's uh, more to the story, but that will give you enough to get you started. Any questions about the homework or about anything I've said so far? Okay. Have I totally confused anybody yet? <laughs> I, I, or your wheels are just turning, right? Do I have your wheels turning? 
This means wheel turning. This means crazy. This means you're thinking. Okay. What's that? Double crazy, yeah. Utterly crazy. All right, the other part of your assignment is a little more fun, a little easier. I asked you to analyze Psalm 67, and you have a handout in front of you that has Psalm 67 right there. And as I mark my iPad, you can mark the paper there because you'll want to take a few notes. So I'll put the notes up here. And as you've read this psalm, what are some observations you made about this psalm of seven verses? Any observations you want to make? Anything? Three and five are the same. Very good. Verse three, verse five. So what I'm going to do, since these are identical, I am going to draw a box around verse 3. And you'll do it much more neatly than I'm doing it here. 3 and 5 are identical. So over here on the left, I'm going to do something that you'll be doing in just a second. You can do it now if you want. I'm just going to put a little line beside each verse, and you'll see why. But line 3 and line 5, verse 3 and verse 5, are absolutely identical. In the Hebrew and in the English, absolutely the same verse. How many verses are there? Seven. How many arms of the menorah are there? Seven. Which stalk of the menorah is the longest? The middle one. Which is the longest verse in this song? Verse 4, the one right in the middle. So we'll just go ahead and make a straight line there. Now, if you look down on your paper, you're going to see this image. Sephardic prayer books, prayer books that you find in the Jewish world around Israel, Morocco, northern Africa, Spain, around the Mediterranean, those are Sephardic Jews. And their prayer books are a little different from the Ashkenazic prayer books, but you often find this symbol of a menorah, and the Hebrew words are Psalm 67. And if you look at your paper, the candle on the left is verse 1, this is verse 2, this is verse 3, the middle one is verse 4. Now verse 4 goes down, it reads from right to left, from top to bottom, it goes down this way, and then it goes across the bottom this way. Okay? And then we have verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. Now, if you look at verse 1, how many words are in verse 1 in the Hebrew? Seven. There are seven words. So let's keep a count of the number of words. This is the number of words in Hebrew. Verse 1 has seven words. Look at verse 7. How many words does it have? I'll give you one guess. Seven. It has seven words. Is it too soon to assume that there's 49 words? <laughs> yes. <laughs> seven words in verse 7. And also notice verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Look at verse 7. God shall bless us. 
That's good news. So obviously, verse 1 and 7 connect on our menorah. How many words are in verse 2? Look at the Hebrew. How many words? Six. How about verse 3? Just shout it out. Six. How about verse 5? And how about verse 6? Six. So how many words do we have, Brandon? <laughs> now it's safe to say it. 49. We have 49 words, which is 7 times 7. See why this is called the menorah psalm? And it's not the menorah psalm by accident. Things like this don't happen by accident. The way the numbers of words match, the way verse 3 and verse 5 are identical. Verse 4 is the long because that's what supports the entire psalm. Does anybody know what time of year this psalm is read? What time of year? During what holiday? Pardon me? Yes. Spring or fall? Fall. No, close. Spring. <laughs> when we count the Omer, we count the 49 days from Passover and until Shavuot, Pentecost. The next day is Pentecost. Every single night when we count the Omer, we read Psalm 67, or at least that's the tradition. Now, what's Psalm 67 about? It's about the nations. It's about God reaching the nations, calling the nations in, a harvest of the Gentiles coming in. Because a light will go forth from Zion, the Torah will go forth from Zion, a light will be seen by the Gentiles, and God gathers them in. It's an amazing thing. Now, if you notice in your, your picture... You'll notice there are Hebrew words going around the very outside over here. You've got words going all the way around and then down. That is verse uh, numbers. It starts right here, and it's numbers, uh, chapter 8, verse 4. And numbers 8, 4 reads this way. Here is how the menorah was made. It was hammered gold from its base to its flowers. Hammered work followed the pattern Adonai had shown, following the pattern Adonai had shown Moshe. This is how he made the menorah. So that's the verse that circles this entire thing. It's really beautiful. And so if you are ever in a Judaica shop, you go to Israel and you see a menorah with Hebrew words on the arms, it's Psalm 67, I promise you. Okay? Any questions about the psalm? How many, how many words were in verse 4? In verse 4, oh yes, there are 11 in verse 4. Yep, forgot to give you that one, didn't I? Yeah, there's 11 there. There we go, yep. Thank you. So in your Bible, if you have one of these Bibles allows you to name the theme, we would put up here the menorah psalm. Beautiful psalm, isn't it? There are other little hidden things in here, but we're not going to take time tonight to go over those. But are there any questions before we move on? Okay. In that case, we'll just keep chugging ahead. 
All right, let's get into tonight's topic. That's the homework. Good, we're right on time. Learning how to mark your Bible is a discipline that you need to develop, and it will contribute to a lifelong, rewarding life of studying the Scriptures. I promise you it will. And it gives you a new way of engaging with the Scriptures, because what we usually do, we see something we like, we underline it. And then pretty soon everything's underlined. So we start using different colored highlighters, right? And <laughs> it just gets insane. All the pages get all wrinkly. And maybe you decide you want to erase something. You can't because it's ink and it's high lit and highlighted, high lit, but highlighted. But uh, if you use symbols, then you can always go back and change and alter. You can fix things and do it with pencil. And uh, you're going to find this makes you engage the scriptures and analyze the verses. So these are symbols I developed. My mentor back in the late 70s, a Canadian gentleman, uh, Frederick Burling, wonderful, wonderful guy. He was about 87 when I knew him. And uh, uh, I worked up in Canada for a summer or two. And uh, every day, go to his trailer, he taught me the scriptures. It was just it just caught my soul on fire. And this is one of the things he did. And I've taken his symbols and I've just added and added and added to them. So you have one page has a bunch of symbols on it. Then you have a blank page where you can continue to add and make up your own. A couple of things about the symbols. If you create a symbol, make it something easy to draw. I mean, if you want a symbol for fear... Showing a guy, you know, biting his fingernails is a little bit too complicated to put in the margin of your Bible, right? So it has to be something simple. It has to be something simple and easy to draw because not everyone is an artist. So I've got some symbols here. And let's see, just from the ones you can see on the screen, can you tell me what some of these might be? Just look at them. Just take some guesses. Uh, you look at your paper. Any ideas at all? Oh, come on. Second one is the Torah, yes. So when you are reading, especially if you're reading like in Psalm 119, and it refers to the law of the Lord, that's Torah in Hebrew. Or if you're reading in the New Testament scriptures, it refers to the law, it's referring to the Torah. You put a little Torah symbol, a little Torah scroll. So this is obviously the Torah. Now, if you're going through and you're talking with your friends, they're going to ask, well, where does the New Testament talk about the Torah? Page through, every time you see that symbol, there's the verse, there's the verse, there's the verse. You understand? It makes everything accessible right away. How about some others? How about the capital I and the lowercase i? <laughs> pride and humility. Yeah. Capital I is pride, lowercase i is humility. You'll put a lot of these in the book of Proverbs. What else? This one? Yeah, it looks like a Google sign. It's not eternity, though. That is body, soul, spirit. Body, soul, spirit. I use two circles because... We are made of spirit, which is spiritual, and flesh, which is physical. And where the two come together, God breathed into Adam's nostrils, physical, the neshama of life, his spirit, 
And man became what? When these two mix, man became a living soul. So where the circles overlap, that's the soul. Now, if you really want your soul to grow, what has to happen? The circles have to superimpose upon each other to where you don't see three or two anymore, you see one. But if the spiritual and the physical divorce from each other, what happens to the soul? It shrinks down to nothing. And then when your soul leaves your body, your spirit leaves, the circles separate and you're dead. You follow? So this is a dynamic relationship. So whenever you find the scriptures referring to any two or three, the body and the soul, or the soul and the spirit, the body and the spirit, I just put the symbol there. And in, uh, is it 2 Thessalonians, where Paul ends the letter with, and I pray that God preserve your entire spirit and soul and body. Then that's a symbol that goes by that verse. And if you watch for this, where the, where the, the word talks about the spirit and the soul, they're, they're, they're different. And the relationship to the body, Romans 8 talks a lot about this. You'll be using this symbol. Okay? What else? Any others you think you might recognize? What's the top one on the left? What's that? Prayer? Oh, that's a good guess. If I have one for prayer coming up. This is an altar. It's just a square with smoke coming out of the top. And I just mark those. When someone builds an altar, or you read in Romans 12, 1 and 2, oh, we should be living sacrifices, I draw an altar there. I use an exclamation mark whenever a miracle occurs. Because that's the purpose of miracles. To draw attention, like boom, okay? So in the Gospels, you'll have a lot of these. Star of David, guess what that refers to? <laughs> when it talks something specific about the Jews and the capital G, when it talks specifically about the Gentiles. Now, there are two other symbols you can use in combination with any one of these, and that's an up arrow or a down arrow. So if the Jewish people are doing something really right, I put an up arrow beside it. If, they're, if God's... <laughs> If God's correcting them, saying, straighten up, you're not doing right, I put a down arrow. Same thing with Gentiles. Now, I'm dating myself on this, but the, the cone there with the F on it is for a fool. Uh, Stephen probably remembers dunce caps. In grade school, they put you in the corner with this cone on your head. You had to face the corner. You're a dunce. Now you'd get sued for that, but a dunce cap. So, yes? What year was that? Uh, 18, what was it? <laughs> it was in the 50s, back in the 50s. Whenever someone dies, I draw a little tombstone, okay? Um, so it's a death. Now, it's not when the Bible talks about death. It's when there's an actual death. Sometimes I'll put the number of years or I'll put the name of the person who dies. The paddle is whenever you read about discipline. I know that's not politically correct, but that's what I use, a paddle. And in Proverbs, we use quite a few of those. Yeah, we use that. I use the paddle several times. Yeah. <laughs> Can't do it now. The heart, what do you think that represents? love. Okay, at the top, any of these, what do you think these mean? 
Uh, well, the angels, the angel wings, yes. Whenever an angel appears or is referred to, I just draw a little angel wing. When Satan or the demonic is referred to, I draw the pitchfork. And I know he doesn't carry a pitchfork around, but it's kind of a rep universal symbol. The menorah right above the angel ring, wing. Whenever you find a menorah pattern, you find one story that connects to another story. I draw a menorah beside each story. Beneath the menorah, I put the reference for the story that corresponds. So these menorah uh, symbols will come in pairs. And I just put the, the reference right beneath of the connecting story. A W is always a warning. A capital P is for a principle. Now, you could put a capital P beside every verse in the Bible because <laughs> they all contain principles. But sometimes a principle is very just in your face. It's a principle that if you, you can apply to your life. It's something you can do now to make your life better. I put a capital P there. Capital R and believe it or not, there should be a lot of these in your Bible. This is the restitution of all things. It's one of the biggest topics in the Bible, but it's one of the least taught and least known in Christianity. And that is that God is the Savior of the entire world. Okay. Now, see the, uh, the kind of the half circle of the arrow? One is going right but bends to the left. One's going left but bends to the right. What do you think those are? Take a guess. Yes. Which one would be repentance? The second. The second one. And why would that be? Because you're going to the right. Yes. You've changed directions. You're going right. Right is always a spiritual. Left is always a physical. So you turn around, you're going to do things right. So if this one's repentance, what's the other one? That one's backsliding. You, go, you, you were going the right way, but you turn around and decide to go the wrong way. This H is not an H, that's a throne, and that represents judgment. Because for there to be judgment, there has to be a judge. And the judge sits on the judgment seat. Now, one of the things I do, I, I, I might just have a two or three on here, are some Hebrew letters that I found very useful. Because every Hebrew letter is a word, and those words have meanings. And to me, they're just, they, I see them, and I just think of the meaning of the letter. And this is the letter Kof for Kadosh. It means holy. Tav, this is the last letter of the alphabet, Tav. The meaning of the letter is cross. Yes, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet means cross. And that would have been the shape of the cross that Yeshua was crucified on. There are two uprights planted in the ground permanently. He carried the cross piece through the streets. They nailed him to that, hauled that, and just hooked it onto the two uprights. Okay. Let's go to the left side here. What do you think the dollar sign represents? 
money, finances, anything where there's a principle having to do with money, with tithing, anything with finances, I put a dollar sign. And the Z's makes you think of someone snoring, someone sleeping. This is laziness, slothfulness. What do you think the lips are for? Speech, the tongue. And you can have an up arrow for good speech, down arrow for bad speech. Now this is my uh, attempt at a lightning bolt. This is wrath. Whenever it talks about God getting angry, I do that. And it's not that difficult to draw. I draw a an angled line, and then I put another angled line, and I just connect. I try to, you try to draw a lightning bolt. They're not easy to draw. But this is as close as I can come. <laughs> okay, Eliana, what do you think this one is at the top on the right? Yeah, on the screen. Yes, that's my symbol for prayer. And that's not too bad to do. You just draw two S's and make some horizontal lines. Oh, yes. Whenever we see someone coming down from heaven, when you see... Uh, God descending, you see something in the heavenlies coming to earth. Then that's the symbol there. So you can think of a heavenly visitation. Messiah's return. The kingdom coming. All of those. I use a cloud to represent the kingdom of God. Now, what if you have an arrow going up to the cloud? That's a resurrection, <laughs> right? And uh, or someone uh, ascending into heaven. And there's several of those in the scriptures. A key simply means a key verse. Now, this is very important. When you come to a passage, it might be a whole chapter, it might be half a chapter, it might be, uh, you have to decide. You come to a chunk of scripture there's almost always going to be one verse that's the key to that entire passage. It's the key thought or the key that unlocks the whole passage. Look for that. What's the key thing? What's the main thought that's trying to be expressed through this passage of Scripture? We can often get lost in the details. This is one of the problems that we inherently have growing up in the West, we tend to memorize Bible verses instead of memorizing Bible chapters. So we know these little tidbits, these little chunks, these little hors d'oeuvres from the Bible instead of following a whole flow of thought. And it could be that verse that you've memorized isn't even the key verse of the chapter. Something else is the key. But because that verse was something that was important in the theology and the church you were raised in, they pulled that one out and forgot about everything else. That's easy to do. We all tend to do that. <clears throat> so watch for key verses, key statements when you're reading. Um, this is the letter Shin. It's the letter of fire. It even looks like flame. Q&A, whenever there's a question asked. What's the first question in the Bible? What's the first question? 
That's the first question God asks, but it's not the first question in the Bible. That's a, that's a very good guess. What's that? Did God really say? Okay. That was the first question asked by Satan. And, of course, this is the answer. So whenever there's a question asked in the Bible, no matter who it is that asks it, I put a Q there. If an answer is provided, not all questions are answered. But if an answer is provided, I put the A there. Okay. The F over here on the left, the arrow, this is something, a prophecy that has to do with the future. Most prophecy does not have to do with the future. When, God, when someone's revealing God's thoughts, that's prophecy. If it happens to ha do with the future, then you can put the symbol beside it. The hammer represents work. A lot of good verses there about the importance of work. This next in the circle, the arrow, this is uh, man or the male, masculinity, and then the female, femininity. And if you join the two circles together, what do you think that represents? That's marriage, okay? I put a C whenever there's a commandment. And believe it or not, there are more commandments in the New Testament scriptures than in the Old Testament scriptures, about three times as many. I use the little bomb here. <laughs> That's supposed to be a bomb. That's for anger. Now, the lightning bolt is for wrath, for God's wrath, because lightning comes out of the sky. But the bomb here, all it does is does damage, makes a lot of noise, makes a stink, and causes damage. That's man's anger. Balance. Now, this is one of the most important symbols on here. Everything in the Bible is about balance. That's why it's all built on a menorah pattern. Menorahs have to balance. If your menorah is bigger on one side or the other, it's going to tip over. Scriptures are in balance. Everything's balance, not compromise, balance. So when you look in the scriptures and you see something there uh, where it says, behold the goodness and the severity of God, there's balance. Okay? Um, there, there are all kinds of passages. Um, by the way, my Bible, I have it right here, and I invite you to take a look at it if you want to, and you can see how I've used these symbols in my Bible, and I keep adding as I study and go over things. But you'll see my, my Bible's marked up, but not as much as you may think, because I'm very hesitant to underline. I do on occasion. I don't do a lot of underlining, but you have other things there that means I don't have to put so much marking in it, but every mark I have is very significant and really makes my Bible easier to use. So I'm answering questions or counseling with somebody and trying to help somebody out or trying to find something for myself, I can find it much more quickly. Okay, a couple more. This would be a resurrection. You can add more arrows if a bunch of people are getting resurrected. <laughs> so you can uh, do the however you want. PR is not a principle. This is a promise. You just have to remember that the R there is a promise. P by itself, a principle. PR, a promise. Now, there are more symbols I use. No, there's an important one I should add here. Fear. I'm always talking about people about fear these days. And it seems like it's one of the constant topics I'm always talking about. And to me, I think it's prophetic because it talks about in, in the end times, men's hearts will fail them for fear. 
And people don't even know what they're afraid of. They just wake up afraid. And uh, the Bible has a lot to say about fear. So what I do when I come to a verse that deals with fear, I put a capital F again, and I down arrow. If it's an F with an arrow coming out of the top, this is fear of God. This is fear of God. This is fear of everything else. Fear of God is a, is a healthy and strengthening thing. Because if you fear him, you don't fear anything else. But to the degree you don't fear God, to that degree you will fear everything else. Okay, so they're opposites. Fear up, and if you want to, you can put a little, you can put a little cloud there if you want to get fancy. Fear of God and heavenly fear. That's a good, healthy thing. Love and fear of God. All right? So this can get you started. Now, one of your assignments from next week, I didn't write it down, but what I'd like you to do is I would like you to take a topic I don't have. For example, maybe idolatry. Idolatry is a topic you see often from, from Genesis to Revelation. I don't have a good symbol for idolatry. So somebody, who wants to volunteer to come up with and create one for that? Okay, Brandon, great. That'd be great. Thank you. <laughs> but I would like each of you to come up with some topic that's not on this list and share your symbol with us next time, okay? It has to be something easy to draw that even somebody like me can draw. All right, can you do that? I think it'd be a lot of fun. Any questions? Now, make yourself use these symbols or better ones if you come up with better ones. But make yourself use them. Don't ever open your Bible without a, a 0.5 millimeter mechanical pencil in your hand. Don't use a pen. You can't erase pen. Don't use a regular pencil. They get all flat and they, they get carbon all over everything. Graphite is a mess. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's too fat. Well, see, see, Brandon, that's why you have so many issues in life. You always have to buck the system. If you've got a large print Bible, use a .7. I mean, you can use a piece of road chalk if you want. I don't care. But, <laughs> no, if you want to use a 7. I, I'm too messy. I find if I use a real fine point, I can... I can write smaller. That's, it's just my, my thing. If you want to use 0.7, you can use 0.7, Brandon. I still love you. All right? Okay. The rest of us normal people, will use 0.5. <laughs> Brandon's my buddy. I'm always teasing him. So uh, that's the cost of being my friend. You get ridiculed in public. <laughs> no, but seriously, whatever works for you, that's what matters. I'm sharing what works with me, but honestly, whatever works for you. Um, as my eyes get worse, I might start upgrading to a 0.7. But I, I'm resisting. <laughs> I am resisting. Any questions on symbols? Any questions? Do you understand the assignment? Who has an idea of what they want to come up with a symbol for? What kind of topic? Yvonne, I see your wheels turning. Do you, are you thinking of one? Okay. No, I'm just I'm thinking. Okay. All right. It's good to have you with us tonight. This is your first time with us in this. Welcome. It's so good to have you. Okay. All right.
So that's part of your assignment then. Now you brought a printed Bible with you, correct? I'd like you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. And we're going to do a little practice. And I've shown you symbols and how I use those as I go through the scriptures. But there's something as important, maybe more important that I do, that I've never really shared in public before that uh, really makes my Bible study uh, richer. It causes me to analyze and think and read and reread and digest what I'm reading. It makes me slow down. And that's, if nothing else, these symbols and these marking devices will make you slow down. We read the Bible way too fast. I did read the Bible through in a year once. And I'm glad I did. I'll never do it again. It's too fast. I rather deep dive than water ski. That's me. And I don't have time to think. And the Bible is our food. You need to chew your food, not speed eat. Like mushmouth plachetti. Remember mushmouth plachetti? I'm the only guy. Who remembers mushmouth plachetti? Bob, you remember mushmouth. You're not, you weren't raised in Ohio, were you? No. Never mind. All right. I'll be getting emails. Who's Mushmouth Machete? All right. It was, he was a pizza. He had, this, he had the record. Every week on Friday night, there was this show, and they would have someone challenge him who could eat a pizza the fastest. And he would eat it in like 30 seconds. He would jam it down. He'd, even, he'd, just, he'd just swallow it without even chewing. Mushmouth. He's from Cleveland. Yeah. So uh, I had a friend who knew him, and they went out to eat. And he says, hey, Mushmouth, you like some pizza? <laughs> he did not want pizza. But boy, he, it, was, it was the most amazing. How do we get on this topic? Let's get back on. <laughs> All right. Now, what you see on the screen, on my screen, is the ESV version of what's called the Inductive Study Bible. Now, when the Inductive Study Bible came out, it was only in the New American Standard. But I really, really like this. This is my second one of these. In fact, I wore out my first one. So when I bought my second one, I didn't even take the cellophane off. I took it. I shipped it to Leonard's Bookbinding over in Indiana. I spent $200 to have uh, heirloom binding put on it. And then they shipped it back to me, and I started copying all my notes over into this Bible. Because I thought, I never want to have to do that again. I never want to have to start over the new Bible. So having a really good binding is something you can pass down to your children and your grandchildren. As Brandon and I were talking today when he was over, any Bible you buy in a store, the binding is worthless. They can put real fancy calfskin leather on it. The binding, though, what holds the cover to the paper is worthless, it will fall to pieces with just daily use. It just won't last. So if you want to make an investment, then uh, get a good binding put on your Bible and it'll last you the rest of your life and maybe the lives of your kids and your grandchildren. They don't make bindings today like they used to. So this is, I really like the new inductive study Bible. Mine's the NASB. But the one on the screen is a new version that's the English Standard Version. And I kind of like the translation better. At first, I wasn't sure, 
but the more I work with them, I've come to like the ESV better. I'm not going to switch over, but when I do notes for the teachings on Shabbat, almost all the quotes are from the ESV. And I, it's a newer translation, and it's, it's good. Not perfect. No translation's perfect. But it's perfecter than <laughs> the NSAB, in my opinion. One of the things I really like about this Bible, it gives you, first of all, it's single column. You never want a double column Bible. No, those are, those are miserable to try to study. Single column, wide margins. I really like that. And uh, it doesn't give you so many Bible helps that they distract you, but it does have the cross-references, as you can see over here in the margin. It gives you enough helpful cross-references, and down at the bottom, some footnotes, uh, translational comments that are very useful, very helpful. And, um, and then there's some things in the front of the Bible, at the end of the Bible, introductions to the books. It gives you a study plan for each book. Oh, and this is really great. You can see that each chapter begins with a place where you fill in what the theme is for that chapter. You get to, to figure out what it is. And there are certain points in your studies where it will say return to instructions. So you go back to the uh, beginning of the book and it will say, okay, now for these next few chapters, look for this. Mark these words. Understand these themes. And then later on you'll come to another one of these, return to instructions. So it helps you study through. And at the end of each book, for example, if I turn to the end of Song of Solomon, well, that's not a good one. I'll do Isaiah, so it's a little longer. What it has, and you can't see it from where you're at, it has blank pages, has every chapter, and you write in those chapter themes. So if you're trying to think, where in Isaiah does it talk about uh, the coming of the Messiah, or whatever. You can look at your chapter themes. So, oh, here it is in chapter 53. Okay? So all your chapter themes are there. When I finish a chapter, I go to the back and I put it in. Psalms is about four, five, six pages long. And uh, you can put in here who wrote the psalm, how many verses it has, and the books of Psalms. There's a Genesis book, an Exodus book. And so at the back of every book in the Bible, it's got this where you can, put, you can write down your summary and your outline. And uh, I have found that really valuable to me. It's just got a lot of great features like that. Yes, the one we were talking about. Because uh, Donna was trying to figure out, she wants to get one of these. Do I get the NASB or the ESV? Can't go wrong with either one. But I kind of lean towards the ESV. No. And if you decide to put a good binding on it, buy the cheapest one they've got. <laughs> then. Yeah, I don't know. I've had Leonard's do a couple for me. People send them in from all over the place, and they do an incredible job. You can even get, did you, here's, here's some trivia. It won't cost you anything extra. What is the most flexible leather? What animal gives you the most flexible leather? You can bend it and bend it and bend it. It'll just never deteriorate. Anybody know? Kangaroo. You can get a kangaroo cover Bible. They'll put kangaroo leather on there. Yeah. These guys are good. so. But just don't drop it. It'll just bounce across the floor. <laughs> okay. Now, here's one of the most important things I do. Uh, now, this is the opening of Mishpatim, which was our Torah portion last week. 
And as you go through, you you know, it's just words, 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 words. And how how do you break this down? How do you break down the sections of this? Now, one of the things the, this Bible does is every once in a while, you'll see a verse that's in bold, like verse number seven. That's to indicate that the people who put this Bible together, they see a new section starting in verse 7. And then if you go on down to verse 12, now verse 12 starts a new section. It's in bold. There's a new section here, 15, 16, 17, 18. And that's what the editors of this Bible saw. And those are good suggestions for you, but you don't have to follow them. I don't. Most of the time I find them to be pretty accurate, but not always. So if, you're, if you start reading this, let's say you're sitting down for the first time to start reading this Torah portion. You try to think, okay, which verses go together? And as you look at this, it becomes obvious that the first six verses do make a unit. So what I do is I draw a vertical line. I use my straight edge here, and I put a bracket. Verses 1 through 6 make a section. And this section is all about the Jewish bondsmen. So now over here, that's what I write in. Jewish bondsmen. So already I've made my Bible more useful because six months from now, a year from now, I'm, I'm looking, where's that section of the Jewish bondsmen? I know it's a nexus. I can be paging through, boom, there it is. It hops right off the page at me. And then I've got wide margins, so when I see a particular word, like if you're following the teaching last week, you know that this word for rules, I'll underline the word rules, instead of using an arrow, I'll just put a dot at the end. That serves as an arrow for me. I'll try to do this without that popping up. Rules, that means go over to the left, and I'll put an equal sign, and I know that this is mishpatim. And if you want to write it out in Hebrew and you feel qualified to do that, otherwise you can write it out in English, and that will remind you uh, what you've learned about the word mishpatim. When you look at verse 5, when you see lists of things, mark those lists. In verse 5 it says, but if the slave plainly says, um, I love my master, my wife, and my children. There are three things he has to specify that he loves. I put an A, I put a B, and I put a C. My master, my wife, my children. There's not just two things, and there's not a fourth thing. There's three things there. There's something significant about that that you can look into. And then when you come to a very key verse, like, and his master shall bore his ear with an awl, and he shall be his servant or slave. That's a problem with the Hebrew. The word eved can mean a servant, as it does here, or can mean a slave, because slavery was universal and has been until just recent history, really the last couple centuries. And in many places of the world, it's still practiced. It has been a reality, an unfortunate reality of human history. It's horrible. But there's a day coming when there, it will not exist anywhere in the world. But back then, they had slaves, they had servants, but they only had one word for both. 
So you have to look at the context. But this verse is such a powerful verse. This master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever, his servant forever. Now, there are two important references, so I've got room over here. The first reference is Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, where David quotes this passage. Because that word, to bore through, means to hole. You hole their ears, all right? You drill the ear. You make a hole in the ear. And, and in Psalm 40, David says, you know, it's written of me in the scroll of the book. You know, uh, my ear you have hold. Okay? And, uh, and it says, and I'll serve you forever. I'm not quoting it exactly word for word. But it's referring back to this. So when you read that in Psalm 40, David's saying, God, I'm, I'm figuratively giving you my ear. Because when you have my ear, you have my obedience. Because the word to hear, Shema, means to obey as well. There's no other separate word for obey than the word to hear. So it says Shema Yisrael. It's not just hear, O Israel, but obey. Do what I'm telling you to do because it'll protect you. It'll save you. It'll preserve you in this world. Because if you obey me, you align your life with mine. And I know how to live this life. I'm the one that created you. I wrote the owner's manual for how to be a successful human being. So align your behavior with mine. It'll be awesome. You'll never regret it. So David's saying, you hold my ear. I give you my ear. And then Hebrews quotes Psalm 40. That's over in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. It quotes the same three verses. Psalm 40, verses 6, 7, and 8 are quoted in Psalm 10, verses 5, 6, and 7, but the writer of Hebrews makes one change. He says, Messiah said, and then he quotes these three verses. He doesn't say David. He says, these are Messiah's words, the son of David. But he changes that, you hold my ear, to, to what? Anybody remember? He changes the words. He says, a body you prepared me. Now, he wasn't trying to deceive people, and he wasn't misquoting it because he didn't know the scriptures. He was making a derash. He was bringing out an insight. And everybody knew that the, the psalm said, my ear you hold. You made a hole in my ear because I want to be a bondservant of yours. But he says, with the Messiah, Messiah says, a body you prepared me. What happened to his body? It was hold. They put nails through his hands, through his feet, pierced his side, put the crown of thorns on him. And he's saying this picture of the bondservant, David says it's a picture of me, it's a picture of us. This is what we do, we give our lives to God. But Messiah gave his life in a very, very literate, literal and very purposeful way. And his entire body was, was hold, it was nailed to the cross because he came to do God's will. And then when you read Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Messiah. That's a picture of me too. Yet nevertheless I live. But it's not me. The Messiah lives in me. And it's like I need to give my life as well. It doesn't mean I have to go out and try to find someone to torture me. But it means I want to give God my hands. I want to give him my feet. I want to give him my heart. I want to give him my head, my mind. I want to give it all to him. 
So there's a chain, there's a connection in the scriptures. Always be looking for that. When you're reading the Hebrew scriptures, always be looking for those, those quotes in the New Testament scriptures. So when I find something quoted in the New Testament, like in Hebrews 10, 5 to 7, I'll put Psalm 46 to 8 in the margin and put quotes there because Hebrews is quoting Psalm 40. Whenever you find one place the Bible quoting another place, I put that reference in the, in the site and put quotes around it because it's being quoted. All right? You got it? Okay. I'm starting to get preachy, so let's move on. Now, 7 starts a new section. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, I like the word servant better here, because the Jewish people were not allowed to sell their people as slaves. And the purpose, reason he would sell his daughters, not because he wanted to have daughters to make profit, is because someone's paying a dowry because they want that daughter for their son as a wife, or the person wants the daughter for himself for a wife. So it continues, verses 7 and 8, and it goes on down to verse 11. Now here, we're on the other side, so we've turned the page, so now all the brackets shift to the other side. And then I put an arrow here to show that it continues on the previous page. I don't have room over here to put much of a topic heading, so I want to use a space here to write what the topic is. And this is for, I don't know any other way to put it, but the sale of a daughter. I should put it caps. Sale of a daughter. Now, in verse 10, we have another list. It says, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish what? Her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And when it refers to clothing, it's referring to shelter in general. It means a home, a roof over her head. People sometimes come to me, and they're really considering divorce. And so, let's look at the checklist. Is the husband, if it's a woman, is, is he providing your food? Sometimes he's not. Is he providing shelter for you? Is he providing intimacy? Okay? If he's doing all three of those things, there's another list later in the Torah that we go to that list then. And it's also in the book of Exodus. And, um, and so we check the list. And... Uh, because I never want to encourage someone to get a divorce unless it meets the scriptural standards. And God hates divorce, but he permits it to protect the innocent victim, the innocent party. He hates it. But if you're in a marriage and one person is violating the word of God and victimizing the spouse, God hates divorce, but he's going to permit it to protect that victim. And so that victim is now free to marry someone else. That's the purpose of divorce, to free you to marry someone else. God hates it, doesn't like it, but one thing he hates worse is someone to be locked into a marriage and be victimized by some brute. Because that really paints a bad picture. Okay? And again, I'm preaching, so I don't want to get off on that. Now, there's a cross-reference. I put a little C that means compare. And I put Ephesians 
5, 28-29. Now, we're talking about marriage here, really. So if you want, you can put the symbol for marriage. Put two circles, and then the arrow up for the male, and the plus sign down for the female. Look at verse 9. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. Now, if he designates her for himself, he'll deal with her as with a wife. But if he's making this purchase, I want to, I want to redeem your daughter for my son. Who does that sound like? Who redeemed a bride for his son? Who do we have a picture of here? It's God. Right? Paid the redemption price for a bride, that's us, for his son. Don't miss these pictures, these shadows of Messiah through here. There's a lot to look at here. And if he did this, you know, because this commandment comes from God, you know he's going to feed us, he's going to clothe and, and protect us, and he's going to give us his love. He's going to do that. That's a promise, because he won't violate his word. All right? Now, when you come to verse 12, you know, here they've got a bunch of, uh, they've got verse 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 all in bold as if they're different sections. But I'm going to combine these. I'm going to take verses 12 through 21, because if you read these, these all have to do with murder and manslaughter, for the most part. Murder and manslaughter, down through verse 21. Oh, for Pete's sake, there we go. So over here, murder and manslaughter. You see how putting these brackets in really helps identify what's going on in the Bible? Makes it your own. And it makes you think about what this is about and how to group verses and so on. One of the other things I do is that whenever there's a capital crime here in the Torah, something that the punishment uh, is death, I put a little X. So verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. That's, a, that's capital punishment, so I put an X there. And then verse 14, if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, just take him from the altar, they may die. That's capital punishment. Verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 16, whoever steals a man, kidnaps, uh, to sell him. All right? That's capital punishment. 17, whoever curses his father or mother, capital punishment. I bet they didn't have many people cursing their father and mother back then. But as you read through here, we see something interesting. In verse 15, it talks about whoever strikes his father or his mother. And then, you in verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother. Now we see a repetition of the language. Always watch for that. And then what I do, just to make sure I don't miss it, I put a dot, and then I connect the two lines. This is one of the things people get real squeamish about, 
when you look at my Bible, <laughs> there'll be two pages there, and there might be a word up here, a phrase that's repeated over here. I'll draw a line. This is why I use a, a point 0.5, because I'll put a line all the way across the page to connect them. And that maps it up in my brain. I can see it in my mind. This, it, it graphically just sticks. If, if you need to connect something on one page to the next page or the previous page, and again, you'll get a little squeamish about this. That's all right. What I do, if it's a, I don't know, I'll just pick out a word, stoned, then I'll take this and I'll just take the line right off the bottom of the page. And then when I come to the top of the next page, I'll just bring it from the top, very edge of the page right down so I know it connects to the previous page. Now, these don't connect at all. I'm just giving you an illustration. But don't be afraid to mark your Bible. I mark it lightly, enough where I can see it, but not so dark that it mars the words, and not so dark that I can't erase it easily. Okay? Because you'll go back and make some changes. Now, when I read here about someone striking his father and mother, that's different from cursing the father and mother. So that's the difference between the two lines. And then you have to ask the question, why are these equal in severity? It makes you ask questions of the text when you begin to see how things are repeated, how things are connected. And then there's a passage that comes to mind over in Paul's letters. So I put here, since I've got room, I could say compare 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, which talks about in the last days will come perilous times. And it goes on. One of the things there is that children will not respect their parents. We've come to think that that's kind of a normal thing to be expected during adolescence. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. That's an end times fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him. Hmm, have we seen that happen somewhere in the Bible? Now, we're in Exodus. Have we seen that happen somewhere before this? Yeah. So you might want to put over here, Joseph's brothers, <laughs> Right? with maybe a little exclamation mark like, hey, these guys did not even deserve to live. They deserve a death penalty, according to the Torah. And yet, what did Joseph do? He forgave them, blessed them, saved their lives, brought them to Egypt, protected them, provided for them. Are you getting the idea? Okay. So, I could keep going on and on and on here. Uh, let's do one more. Let's do one more. And as you learn Hebrew, uh, these things will start jumping out at you more. And by the way, the straight edges I gave you, I wish I'd ordered different ones. Yours has that white frame around it. Mine's clear all the way around so I can see the print through mine and know exactly where I'm drawing the line. So anyways, uh, sorry about that. But you can use this until you get one <laughs> like this. But it makes a great bookmark, and I just keep it stuck in my Bible all the time. But if you look at verses 22 through 27, 22 through 27, 
There we go, 22 through 27. Um, these are the laws of damages. In other words, if you cause damage, you have to make it right. That's what this is all about. And yet this is the part where it talks about if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye. Now let's count how many pairs there are. Life for life, and somebody keep count. Who wants to do that? Okay, Kim, you're doing that? Yeah. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, and that's the same word used in the, over in Isaiah, by his stripes we're healed. So how many pairs do we have? Eight. What's eight the number of? Life. Isn't that something? Now, people read this as that, that Torah, that law. We know bruise for bruise and eye for an eye. I do, that's not how we're supposed to live. When you read this and you find this passage repeated a couple times in Torah, it's never about taking revenge. You knock out my eye, I get to knock out your eye. It's not what it means. It means if you knock out my eye, the court's going to make you pay for my eye. And knocking your eye out doesn't help me, but they'll make you give me money. They'll determine how much my eye was worth, and they're going to make you pay damages. So you're making right, and you shouldn't even have to be taken to court if you accidentally knock out somebody's tooth or break their arm, and if it's an accident, you should be running to make it right to them. What can I do? I'm, I'm going to pay for the doctor's bills, and I'm going to take care of you till you get well enough to go back to work. You, you, it's about responsibility, not about revenge at all. Yes? Yeah, Hirsch points out how ridiculous it is to even suggest that it's an eye for an eye. Because he goes, what if it's a man that only has one, one eye? <laughs> he goes, then it's, not, then it's yeah. not fair if you blind him. You'd have a lot of blind, toothless people walking around, right. wouldn't you? I tell you, yeah, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous how we've interpreted this. Um, now, one of the things I want to point out to you, and if you've listened to teachings I've done on this, that word for that's used in every one of these phrases. It's a very special word. It's the word tachat. Tav, chet, tav. Now the letter tav means what? Cross. Remember? It's on our list of symbols. It means cross. And the word tachat means instead of. And a life instead of a life, an eye instead of a life, uh, or an eye, a tooth in place of, or instead of a tooth, a hand instead of a hand. So you look at the picture here, what we have is we have a cross on the right, we have a cross on the left, and in the middle we have a letter that looks like a cross, it's the same basic shape, but it's not a tuv. This is the letter chet, that's where you get the ch part. So it's like a T-C-H-T, Tachat. And this middle letter is the eighth letter of the alphabet. It means life, numerical value of eight. What you have here is a picture of Calvary. You've got a cross on the left with a thief on it. You've got a cross on the right with a thief on it. The only difference between the two is one repented, one didn't. But in the middle, it looks like a cross, a cat, shaped the same. 
but it's not, it, 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 the, the meaning is something different. Life is found, found in the middle. And what did Yeshua do on the cross? He gave his life to cut your life instead of your life, in place of your life. Think about that. So it's like I knock out your tooth. I'm taken to court and the judges say, yeah, Brandon's tooth is worth $10,000. I don't have that money. And someone steps up and says, you know what? Here's my life savings, my whole life savings. I have exactly $10,000. I'll pay for it. That's what the word in the Hebrew pictures. It pictures Calvary with life, the, the prince of life in the middle, giving his life instead of ours, in place of ours. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. And when you look at all the things, life, eye, teeth, hands, feet, burns, wounds, stripes, there's a picture of all the sufferings Yeshua had on the cross. Burns had to be in there somewhere. I'm not sure where, but I have to have a feeling that somewhere there had to be fire involved. They tortured him mercilessly. But, uh, yeah, what a picture. So, remember, if you see ox and think ox, you're an ox. So don't think like an ox. When you see something, think, Father, what are you showing me about yourself? What are you showing me about Yeshua? What are you showing me about me? How does this apply? Show me yourself through the scriptures. And there's always something there. All right. Are we good? Okay. And you can go ahead and mark your Bibles. Have fun with that. Here's what I want you to do. Take a chapter of Proverbs each day. You can go crazy with symbols and Proverbs, right? Because every verse almost will have its own symbol. But if you read carefully, you'll find that the verses of Proverbs are in groups. So look for why Solomon placed this proverb with this proverb with that proverb. Because they, they seem like they're shuffled all over. And to a degree they are, but there is a, a method to the madness. So take a chapter a day. And, uh, and take that chapter, go through, think about each verse. How does it connect to the verse before and after? Can you find groups and bracket it? And then you can just put a symbol beside the bracket. You don't have to write in words. You can just put a symbol. Oh, these verses are all about speech. Or these verses are all about finances. And so when you find a group of verses that are about one topic, here's what you do. You put the bracket along the side. And if those verses are about pride, you draw a little line out and put a capital I. That means that whole section is about pride. Okay? So there's no question. You know that I is for the whole, the whole section, not just for the one verse. And then choose a favorite book of the Bible and do the same. So I figure we'll probably have another month or six weeks before we get together, so we have plenty of time to do this. But don't delay getting started. Jump into it. Discipline yourself to use symbols and use markings and then start developing your own. It'll revolutionize the way you study the Bible, I promise. It's so practical, so useful. And you'll look forward to your Bible study time in the morning. If you don't now, you will. I've been doing this for decades, and I still look forward in the morning to going through and, and taking another chunk of Scripture and going over it altering some of the symbols and refining them and, and uh, just making that word of God more useful.
It makes my soul mesh with it more. Okay? Any questions at all? Are we good? Was this useful? Was it helpful? All right, good. This was the ESV. Yeah, this is the NASB. They're both good. They're both good, but I think the ESV is just a little bit, yeah, a little bit closer to the, the bullseye. Okay. All right, and with that, look at that, 8 o'clock on the nose. We'll close in prayer. If you want to come up and page through my Bible, get an idea and see what I've been doing with my, with my life instead of mowing lawn, doing, doing all the yard work Robin wants me to do, you can take a look. Our Father, thank you so much for this uh, time together. Thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that even though we, this has been kind of, a, uh, kind of a goofy time and a different time if we've not so much studied the word as studied how to study the word, I pray that you will use these tools to help us, to inspire us, to engage the scriptures in a, in a deeper way than we ever have before. And um, may you use this for your glory, and we just praise you and thank you so much for the light of Yeshua and the light of your Torah. And we praise you and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen.